I was fortunate enough that when I worked in the States, I became friends with these guys that played on Wall Street. And I'll never forget uh, the first time when they opened those old Loire wines. It's just the, the energy and the focus on those wines, especially when they get some age on them. Hello and welcome to the XNMO podcast. I'm David Clark. Uh, we are in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is, at least for now, forbidden. So to keep ourselves busy, we have decided to release a new podcast episode every day during lockdown. Just a quick note on the quality of the audio. Uh, we're relying on our internet connection, and that doesn't isn't always super reliable. There is a delay, so sometimes we talk over each other. So I apologize for the quality of the audio and we have done what we can with the editing to make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Lucas van Lockenberg, a winemaker and owner of Van Lockenberg Wines, although he does make some other wines for other people, like the, uh, the Luerland wines uh, from Bertie Kutsia up in Priska. A wine brand based in Stellenbosch, which with a few others like Rien and Borman and Mick and Janine Craven, have been leading a renaissance in Stellenbosch over the last four or five years. Previous to the emergence of this group and others, has to be said, a lot of the international attention of South African wine was getting focused on the jewel areas of the Swatland. Think Saadi family, uh, David and Nadia, the Molyneux, Artie Badenhorst and the others, and also the Overberg. So I think Chris uh, and Suzanne Eilart and Peter Allen Finlayson at Christellum. Obviously I'm painting with very broad brushstrokes here, but the traditional centre of the premium grape growing and winemaking uh, in South Africa, uh, being Stellenbosch, was more or, left, more or less left in the shade of these other two region, re regions until this group came along. In 2020, Van Lockenberg moved the, the winemaking duties off the Franzmanns Kral farm in the Devon Valley, uh, which was on one of the Carinas farms, to a much more well-equipped and bigger facility just down the mountain from the Tal Monument in Pal. Lucas has an immense passion for the Loire Valley duo of Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc, Yet both his Cinso and Syrah wines are almost universally agreed to be amongst the best currently being produced in South Africa. Uh, he is a truly exciting producer. We chat about his journey in creating Van Lockenberg wines and he talks us through each of his 2019 uh, vintages. I give you Lucas Van Lockenberg. I'm joined by Lucas Van Lockenberg. I get uh, a tease for saying your name incorrectly. Did I say it incorrectly? That's perfect. Oh, perfect. Nice one. I'll, I'll, I'll tell yeah. people that you say that when people... Uh, <laughs> Tell me I'm saying it wrong. You make the Van Lockerenberg wines. Your 2019s are almost hitting um, people's mouths, uh, in a, I think in a week or two. Maybe just give us a brief rundown of, uh, of the brand in terms of the brief history. This is vintage number four, 16, yes. 17, 18, 19. Yeah, so 16 was the first vintage. Uh, so yeah, what, what, what were you doing before you started your own wine brand? Yeah, I grew up in Rawsonville, which is basically a as everyone knows, in the Breedekloer Valley, and it's grapes. Not, not, and not, not, not everyone knows that, mate, to be honest. Oh, yeah. So it's uh, probably an hour from Cape Town, an hour and 20 minutes. Um, the, the people in the Breedekloer have used the term on the other side of the mountain. Um, so you go through the, the Twiskloer Pass to get there, and it's this beautiful valley that's known for producing mass quantities of, of wines and vineyards. Um, very beautiful rich soil so I've grew up with wines always being around me in the vineyards and stuff so that's oh, that's that's Thomas in the background your uh, your little boy <laughs> so Brudekloof is sort of uh, historically known as a bulk uh, wine area and an area for for brandy um, grape production is that would that be for yeah you to say? brandy it's that's kind of the heart the heartlands of brandy country but a few of my good friends like Atti and Mariette Stoffberg and there's a few other guys and um, that are starting to make exquisite wines there and putting a lot of more focus and effort into the vineyards. Um, so yeah, a fantastic place. So I was fortunate enough to, to go to Alsenburg um, after, after a few years after school, fortunate enough to work for a few great wineries. And the dream has always been to, to make your own wine where you can express yourself and your creativity. Because the thing is, when you go and work for wineries that have a reputation already that you kind of have to follow within those strict guidelines of wine philosophy and stuff, you can't really very take the train on a different track or rail. So yeah, 2015, 2014, uh, we went to France on holiday and we went to the Loire Valley and uh, there was kind of this epiphany moment where I just decided, listen, I'm going to do it when I get back home. And we started planning on doing our own thing. So 2016 was our first vintage. 
So when did you when did you finish up at Elsenburg, which is the agricultural college uh, in Stellenbosch? So I went. Uh, I was a bit older than the other first year, so I went 2007, and we finished 2009. So it's a three-year degree. Okay. And uh, so between 09 and 2014-15, where were you working? Where did you travel around uh, to? And- I was at <clears throat> I was at Rakes, uh, private cellar in Tilbach. A very good friend of mine, Pierre Wall. Just up the valley, past Wolseley, to uh, from Rawsonville, virtually. Yeah, yeah. It's, you drive through Wolseley to to go to. To Tolbach, unbelievable soils, very schisty soils, uh, shale. Um, so, and he was he's a wonderful uh, mentor, especially back then when I was really young and uh, the whole world of wine was in front of you. Mm. I learned a lot of from him. Uh, I was there for the 2010, 11, 12 vintage, and then I went to the States to a small vineyard called Hagbrown Vineyards, just north of the Finger Lakes. And then I was there for two vintages, came back. That would have been incredibly different to Tulbach, I would have thought. Yeah, I think the reason why I wanted to go abroad, I never had the chance to, to travel and just go be a seller at and drink a lot of wine and beer while harvesting. So after Alsmeg, I got the, the permanent assistant winemaker position at Rakes. And I just felt if I'm not going to go and travel and, and see the world, I'm never going to do it again. So... I think the reason why I went to the States is obviously you think you can grow grapes and make wine, but for me it was just to go learn a bit more about marketing because uh, the Americans are very good at that and the world's best wine is a sold wine. So I think that's where I kind of learned a lot about brand packaging, how you sell the wine and what, what the end consumer sees in, when, in, the, in the product that we call wine. So. Yeah, right. Okay. So just looking at it from a different perspective, from a production point of view, so more from a, a, a consumer's point of view or, yeah. a wine, or a wine lover's point of view. No, that's interesting. Yeah. So you started in 2016. Uh, yes. from so I'm assuming that there was a bit of planning in 2015. How did that set from a business point of view? Because there's obviously guys out there and girls out there who want to start their own thing. And you've been a pretty successful, obviously, a very short um, career so far, but um, a pretty successful new brand in the marketplace. What was looking back at it? What was the, what were the most important decisions you made when you were setting up Van Lockenberg? Sure. Obviously, you have to have a great support system because it's quite a daunting thing if you think how small the wine industry is or the community, and um, you only have basically one shot at it. Um, so I was. I'm still privileged that I have Roxanne, my wife, on, on my side. Her kind of speciality is zero-based budgeting where she really, when she worked for a company, um, she had to like really minimalize the, the input cost or the, the overheads of producing a product but to increase that prof- profitability. Mm. And so she always was that great foundation. And then obviously friends. I remember in 2014, in beginning of 2015, we went to this charity function in Stellenbosch and, and Bucci, Chris Alak was there. And I just kind of asked him because he's always been one of my dream idols or role models of, of the wines that he makes, but also he's, he's... Do you have a bit of a man crush on Bucci? Yeah. <laughs> if you look at my body, you, you'll, you might agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, 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 you probably know this, but you're colloquially known as Lung Butch. So, <laughs> and uh, so I asked him the evening after a few glasses of wine. I just asked him, and uh, I said, Butchie, I'm kind of, and he just said, just do it. But he used a, a little swear word in front. Oh. He said, You know, you can make wines, and you know, you have great vineyards that you're going to use. And that was for me kind of the, the final push that I needed. Mm. Um, and when I was working in Paul at uh, Drekmanit Wine Estate, there was this old vineyard, Shannon, that I started pruning because the grapes went to a big co-op and it wasn't really looked after. So that's the camaraderie single vineyard that we do. So I knew at least I, um, I'm going to be able to have a great vineyard or great wine. And then a few of the other wines kind of fell in place when we moved to Stellenbosch. Uh, we found a good friend's farm, Dani Kerinas. And that's where the Breton originated from and so on. So, yeah. Yeah, very cool. So talk us through the, um, the first one, which is the uh, Break a Leg uh, Blanc de Noir. So maybe, obviously, the name uh, is pretty, a pretty uh, visual uh, representation of what, what, uh, what happened 
during harvest. <laughs> uh, maybe so, yeah, and then and then maybe talk to us about Blanc de Noir versus Rosé. Sure. So I'll start with the name break leg. It was the ten minutes past midnight, the first of January, twenty sixteen, uh, two weeks before harvest. How many we beers? Were, have, how many beers have you drunk? <laughs> this was way past the, the beers. This, oh, right. this okay. The brandy started coming out. Oh, okay, right. Uh, so I, I injured my left knee in the middle of 2015, um, broke my patella tendon. That's a, a, another story. And then um, there was a weakness on my kneecap, and that evening with the, my quad um, and this new tendon, um, it just tore the, the kneecap in half. In that time of the morning or evening, there's no ambulances coming to fetch you. So Fred Squin and Renan Borman had me on the back of a of a plank that he used in the bakery in his Jeep on the way to Mediclinic. I was freaking out because it was already a big step. My wife had to um, quit her job. We're moving to Stellenbosch now. And I was just thinking of how am I going to survive this harvest because I didn't have any money for an intern or harvest helps. And uh, anyway, they fixed my knee. And then a very good friend of mine, David Saad, he said, why don't you just do a, a, a Rosé Blanc de Noir that you can sell unlabeled very quickly to help with the medical cost? Because that was kind of accumulating a lot because they had to redo the knee in the middle of harvest because I had to work and um, it didn't regrow properly. I got some barrels from Ibn Saadi when I started my first vintage. He said, during before just before harvest, if I need anything, I should shout. And I said, obviously, some barrels would help. And, um, <laughs> I need somewhere to put it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very generous coming back to the friends, helping. And um, I had this beautiful block of Sinso. He always said, if you're going to do something to do with vineyards when they're not 35 years, is to make rose. And so I got a bit of the Sinso and um, yeah, we, I thought, why don't they just ferment it in, in oak barrels? It came out pretty decent, or I thought it was. Mm. And then, then um, Bucci, Chris Allight, uh, told his import in the UK, Richard Kelly, that he should come taste our wines in the cellar. I was very nervous when he came around because he's kind of a big deal in the UK. And I didn't add any bias for my wines yet. And um, as we were tasting through the 2016 vintage, I got tipsy because I didn't spit anything because I was nervous as hell. Mm. And I said to myself, I'm going to let him taste this two barrels of Blanc de Noir Rosé. And um, he said, sure, what are you going to do with it? And I explained him the whole story. And he said, well, if you give it a name and put a label on it, then I'll take half of it. And, and that was kind of the birth of Break a Leg. And I just thought that one day when my kids, when times are tough and you can have a glass of this or a bottle, hopefully. Just think of their dad and their fir his first harvest, kind of making the best of a worse situation. It, so it's 100% since so, the 19 um, from Stellenbosch. So answering your question about Blanc de Noir and Rosé, um, I'm kind of very finicky um, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, and for me, if there's no white wine in it, then it's a Blanc de Noir. Okay. Um, so this is 100% uh, Sinso vineyard. This is a planted in 1992. And I think we call it the Fir Grove area. I don't think it's an appellation, but um, no. farmed by this fantastic farmer called Peter Riddell. So it's um, down in the southern part of Stellenbosch, underneath the Helderberg uh, Mountain, so just north of False yes. Bay, near Fora. Yes. So what, what's, what's, what's so unique about this area? I mean, obviously, it's, there's lots of different areas in Stellenbosch. It's quite a, quite a complex appellation. How is this part of the of Stellenbosch unique? What I like about this area and very good friends of ours, the Cravens and, and Bernard Bredel, who works with a lot of grapes in that area. I really love the, 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 the tannin structure that you get because of the soil type there. It's this really soft, sandy, almost granitic type uh, soil. I love granitic uh, soils, uh, the, the focus that they bring on wines. But what makes this farm very unique is its proximity to the ocean. It's very close. There's always this beautiful Atlantic breeze that's blowing in the afternoons. And then this vineyard is one of the few vineyards on the farm that has irrigation. With Sinso, that stresses it quite a lot uh, when it comes because it's a late ripening variety, especially when we do the last pick. Um, 
that really helps getting the, the grapes, just keeping them nice and healthy and stuff. So. Cool. And what are you trying to, what sort of style are you, does the wine end up being? I mean, are you, are you driving that or is the, do the grapes coming in sort of dictate to you? But I mean, it's, I, I've been in the cellar when you've been, when you've been received, when you've received the grapes. I mean, it is a, a very hard point at which you stop pressing and, uh, and yeah, make decisions. For me, I- Obviously picking is important also, as you said. It's. I think it's a bit of both. Obviously, the vineyard has to do is ninety percent of the wine, um, and then kind of trying not to add too much stuff to the to, to the juice or wine. So we only use a bit of sulfur, and so the first pick will basically be just be picked for to have a, a low pH component and a nice acidity, because as we as most of us know, since it isn't known for having a massive acidity or a low pH. So for, then, those, for those for those super geeks out there, what sort of bulling are you are you picking that first pick at roughly? I mean, obviously it, it varies from year to year, but sort of ballpark. Well, I try to try to do that baseline component almost around seventeen and a half to eighteen and a half bulling. Okay, um, so that's sort of like eleven eleven percent potential alcohol. Is that about right? Yeah, eleven. Um, so I'm not looking for any beautiful nose component on that wine it's just basically when it ferments in the barrel it looks like white wine because yeah we really don't press it hard and then um, it's basically just to have that beautiful acidity for the for the finished product to uh, Mm. that kind of the structure and the mouthfeel and so i've always loved traveling to europe um I, i have this thing that we are blessed in our country that we have probably the most cultures in the country um, but the only culture that we don't have is a rosé culture, where I grew up, where a lot of, I, even I thought that rosé was sweet, cheap, or a byproduct of wine, of winemaking. So when you go to France and you, you see how the, the, the communities treat rosé, it's, it's, like it's like part of their, their lifestyle. And so I've always loved that texture, especially from the bundle area and the southern parts of France. And then we're really blessed that we have I think the best Sinsa vineyards in the world. And Sinsa, Mouvet and Grenache for me are the three perfect uh, Blanc de Noir varieties. Uh, and I think fermenting dirty in old French oak and leaving it on its lease takes away a lot of that tutti fruity new world rosé flavors that we get. When you and say fermenting time, dirty, what are you what are you talking about? So when we so we de-stem the grapes um, and then it goes into the press and then you get nice free run juice from it. Sinsa is also a very difficult grape to press because it has a lot of pectins in it. So it's quite snotty, the grape. Uh, Literally, how it feels. That's quite gooey. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so pressing dry is also very difficult, which makes it perfect for me. Um, And then we settle it overnight. Fortunate enough that we have a new cellar that we move into, so there's cooling leaving it without sulfur, letting it settle overnight just for the solids to settle down. And then the next morning, we, we rack it to, to an old French oak barrels where it just ferments uh, very quickly. Since um, mm-hmm. ferments, I found one of the varieties that ferments very nicely. And then we top it up and I'll give the, the first sulfur to the wine around Easter, Easter weekend. And that's basically it. And leaving it on that primary lease for me gives this unbelievable texture because we try and keep the end product around 12.5% alcohol. So Are you doing batonage with those leaves or? No, not at all. No, um, okay. It's for me kind of risky because the, the lease is so dirty and these vineyards don't carry a lot of, of fruit, especially in this drought uh, era that we're in. So there's, with the wine being light on its feet, there's still in the middle this beautiful fine texture. Um, that comes from that area in Fergro. Once the barrels are finished ferment uh, and it's, you know, elevaged out, um, do you do you rack them into a tank and leave it there for a bit to homogenize before you bottle or is it straight to tank, straight, straight into bottle? Yeah, I should probably leave it longer in the tank, which, um, but normally we need to get it out because this one really does well for us. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a week before bottling, we'll take it out. Don't do any uh, stabilization of the of the wine. Um, and you're bottling usually in what sort of October-ish, September, October of vintage? No, um, of the it vintage? keeps on getting earlier. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, looking at looking at April this year, or 
<laughs> no, it's uh, we try to do it end of July, middle August, so that we can hit the market around springtime. And I, I think leaving it on its lease with that dirty lease, kind of, that's for me the perfect amount of time um, to to just give that perfect middle mid, mid structure to the wine. Okay, so then we've got two Shannons. Do you want to talk about camaraderie or trust your gut first? Let's do the trust. Trust your gut. In lockdown, my gut's getting bigger and bigger. Does that mean I can trust it more and more or less and less? What do you think? <laughs> when it comes to opening wine, you should trust it. Okay, right. <laughs> That's dangerous. <laughs> so camaraderie, you mentioned before, is your, like a single vineyard uh, old vine um, shenan. Um, trust your gut is a blend of different vineyards. Yeah. So the whole idea behind uh, the, the two shenans, or firstly shenan is we're really blessed and fortunate that we have some of the best uh, white wine grapes in, in the world. And Chenin Blanc for me is such a great narrator of where it's uh, planted and who's farming it. Even on the same farm, the uh, two neighboring blocks will be completely different. Camaraderie is for more for the for the, the Chenin geeks where Trust Your Gut is uh, for me the complete Chenin where if you want to introduce someone in America to Chenin Blanc, uh, this is the wine I would pour because it has a bit more of that fruit character that you expect from a Shannon, um, which is duly because of the vineyards that we work with. And I chose the vineyards so that each one contributes something to the final blend. Why we I chose the name Trust Your Gut for this wine. When you <clears throat> when there's when you try and make wines for or this market that we that we cater for. Uh, you can't really miss your picking date because we try to keep the wines as honest as possible. It doesn't matter in which profession you are. The more experience you have, the bigger your gut gets. When you have to make those difficult calls, you just kind of have to trust your, your inner instinct. Uh, and that's for me the, the same thing with, with making wine. So it's two vineyards, the 2019. Um, it's 73% from the Perbach, Jubersklof, um, which is on the western side of the the mountain, if I'm correct. Um, those vineyards are this year 40 years old, um, planted on this, uh, the Swartland guys call it decomposed granite, but it's really the soft, uh, sandy, granitic soils. And then 27% of this wine is from the Polkadra hills, um, farmed by this amazing farmer, Yosha Yubair, on a farm called Karibub. So Polkadra is a... a, a, a a uh, award within the Stellenbosch um, WR. Yeah, it's a very small award. Um, yeah. It's also com very complicated to to explain its boundaries because uh, some of the farms which are not on a hill are included in the Polkadra Hills and then yeah. some of the farms on a hill isn't in it. So. Well, the, the boundaries are more um, roads rather than geographically uh, yeah, side, exactly. yeah, so it's not exactly a, a geographical uh, limitation, but uh, yeah. yeah. So what makes the, the two common things between these two vineyards that bring them together together is the granitic-based soils. And for me, granite soils on Shannon is fantastic because it gives this almost vibrancy, energy, tension, focus to the wines. And with all, all these vineyards being old vines, whatever that means, they they you don't have to do a lot with them in the cellar. And they farm by fantastic, by fantastic farmers. Mm. So we do old bunch pressing, um, very simple, let it settle overnight again. Um, and then the next morning, the juice looks pretty dirty. And then it goes to French oak, uh, mostly big 500 liter barrels. And then it ferments without sulfur. And then it stays on its primary lease until end of November before bottling. What does the resulting wine, what do we? What would you expect in the resulting wine in terms of a Stellenbosch slash Swatland blend? Off granitic soils. What does the 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 sixty seven percent Paderberg sort of bring to the table, and what does the uh, the Stellenbosch component yeah. bring? If you want to show people what Chenin Blanc smells like, that true Chenin fruit, I always say to drink Stellenbosch Chenin uh, um, because it it has that beautiful yellow fruits, that dried mango, pineapple, apricots, all mm. those yellow fruits. And for me, it I does, love that. It does, it does tend to have a bit more fruit weight than the from the exactly. the Paderberg uh, fruit, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so I always wanted to have that on the nose on this wine. Yeah. Um, but too much can be. I want people to finish a bottle of wine and maybe opening another one. Yeah. And 
it can become quite tiring if there's too much of that fruit on the, on the nose for me. Mm. And for me, I love the Swartland Paderberg Shannons. Um, I, I can name 20 people that make fantastic Shannons from there. But it's just the tension that they get on their uh, Shannons there on that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned David Sardi before. I mean, he's making some absolutely phenomenal wines from uh, Shannon Blocks from the Paderberg, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, him, um, Donovan Rahl, the Mullineux, Ardy, Yevon, mm. all those guys. Uh, so for me, I thought... It, what a better area to kind of coil that beautiful fruit flavors than Paderberg Shannon. And uh, I was lucky enough to, that a guy that studied with us in Elsenberg, Jens Miller, is the farmer on Eitflich, which is the farm where these grapes come from. So the, the Swartland Vineyards just gives this unbelievable length and fine texture to this wine, um, while still having that almost like caramelized oatmeal that you get from Stellenbosch, that yellow fruits, dried mango. And the ageability of your wines, of, your, of, the, of the trust you get? What's, what's your, I mean, obviously, this is only the fourth one you've made. Um, what's the... Yeah, we opened, we opened a 17 the other evening, which I never do because we don't have a lot of our wines that we kept. And it was still unbelievably young. It still had, there wasn't any real tertiary aging notes on it yet. And the great thing is, for me, I'm... I'm a true believer that pH uh, is very crucial for aging wines. And these old vineyards come in with pHs of 3.2, 3.3. So and I would say leave them, drink them between three and seven years old. But I am hope there are a few people out there that, that will keep them for longer because then that's the only way we'll see. And 19 as a vintage for Shannon Blanc, what's your, what's your take? Unbelievable. Um, oh, really? It's for me very similar to, to the 17 vintage. Mm -hmm. um, it's really this fine, elegant wines. Um, the pH is obviously much lower than the 2018 vintage, which for me was much, much more warmer, very similar to the 16, the 18s. So I think it's a, it's a wine that, a vintage that will age. It's a vintage that I think you need to open the wines or decant them before you drink them young because um, I found a lot of them especially we're blessed that we're friends with people that make fantastic wines and when you drink get back to those wines on the second night or second day they're really singing so the 17s and the 19s uh, of the recent vintages seem to be the the most linear and precise of the of the, of the last four vintages yeah. I guess yeah and that's the that's the wines that I like. I like wines that uh, obviously people that have seen me is, can see that I love food. And for me, I love wines that have this beautiful vibrancy, beautiful freshness to it. And but obviously, it needs to be picked ripe because if you don't pick white grapes ripe, everything tastes and smells the same. Yeah, you do lose a lot of character, don't you? Those sort of uh, yeah, it's a, it's a delicate balance between too much going on and not enough going on. Yeah. Okay, now let's chat about the um, the aforementioned uh, camaraderie. Is um, un, untypically for for an Afrikaans winemaker, it's the only wine that you've named in Afrikaans. Yeah, I think camaraderie is that word that everyone around the world knows what it means. Um, hmm. English and Russian, they use the word camaraderie, um, and it's for me the reason why we went with camaraderie on this is is basically if you see the label there's all these hands holding each other helping um and it's just to kind of give thanks or tribute to everyone that helped us but also giving tribute to the farmer the, the camaraderie between the farmer and his farm workers and that connection that interchanging of hands that it takes to make a fantastic bottle of wine um and we kind of came across this vineyard um, a very good friend of mine <coughs> from Elsenberg, his dad, the generation farmers and Paul. And um, we rented this farm um, high up in the Klein Drakenstein uh, mountains. And um, when they heard I wanted to do my own thing, I asked him if he doesn't know of any special sites of Shannon that are there. And he took me to this vineyard, but it looked like a, like an Amazon jungle. It's really, <clears throat> I think, if you think of David Sardi's worst in the reason why they called it Wurstian is because of the, the pruning methods that they used. The, 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 what's it, the buds, the, the 
the heights of the vineyards, these old bush vines are very high. Mm. And uh, I said, listen, can I start working with, take fruit from this? And he said, yeah, well, why don't you just farm the vineyard? And I said, okay, that's perfect. Um, and we started pruning everything by myself, um, which took forever. Um, and the first year, the 2016 vintage, when we picked it, I think we got 1.6 tons of it, of two hectares. So two hectares um, of vines, how long does it take you to prune it if you were just doing it by yourself? Yeah, I think it was almost three weeks. Uh, yeah, right. It's pretty sloped. It's very high up in the mountains. So um, we start from the top and just work downwards because uh, my body walks better downwards than upwards. Uh, <laughs> so you're not, you're not built like a mountain goat, are you? <laughs> and um yeah it's it's just this unbelievable old lady vineyard planted in 1960 mm -hmm. um and it's just when you when especially in, in springtime when you when you walk in that vineyard you it reminds me of the loire valley you get that wild fennel it smells like wild fennel there um, mm. and it comes through on the wine um, it's for me a bit more towards that geeky shannon um, crude Loire style, that uh, green pistachios, that beautiful white floral flavor. And then these old vineyards, I don't know how they do it. Their pHs are always lower than the, the younger vineyards. Um, mm. So it's just an easy wine to make. And, and we try to just jockey the wine through the, through the uh, cellar and into the bottle. Would the, um, the low pH be just because the, their root system is larger and it's going further into the bedrock or am I being uh, very simple? Yeah, I think the clever people like Etienne Perblanche and Ursa will probably give, uh, I can give my opinion, but the farmer that, that owned the farm and he always had this saying that he unfortunately passed away, but he's, he had the saying, if the vineyard has been there for 50 years, it there must be something going right for it. So um, I think probably they've seen a few vintages as well, the vineyards themselves. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That's a very good good question, David. I don't know how to answer that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I find the camaraderie probably uh, like slightly too interesting, if, if I'm going to put it that way. I mean, I, I, I much prefer the, uh, the, the, the drinkability of the trust your gut. Um, but I, I seem to be um, in, a, in a minority for this because the camaraderie always is the, is the wine that gets the more plaudits and obviously the story's uh, a little bit uh, more interesting, but I think the, people, the, the wine in the glass is a much more intense, uh, riper, uh, complex um, uh, experience than the trust your gut, but I just find the trust your gut has, has much better, for me, balance and, and freshness almost, whereas the camaraderie... Yeah. Has 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 an exotic character to it, uh, which yeah. I, I find hard to. As you said before, you were talking about you want people to drink a bottle and then want a second one. I can do that with a trust you got for sure. But the camaraderie, um, it's a it's a phenomenal wine. But I can't. I, I, yeah, I, it I, is I, a, I have to move on. Uh, after having a glass or two of that. I think a massive contributor to that is. We never get more than one ton a hectare of that vineyard, which mm. financially my wife doesn't like, and I can understand why. Yeah. But so for that fruit concentration, it is, I think, probably more a food wine compared to Trust Your Gut. And yeah. I must say the versatility of Trust Your Gut is, is especially when it comes to food-wise, you can have mm. it's from A to Z, where camaraderie is, I think, not a more cult wine, but... Um, it's kind of showcasing that special vineyard and it's in Paul, which I think also plays a, a massive role, especially on the flavor profile. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I was, if I was, if, if I had to sort of describe the wines using, uh, other sort of classic regions as an example, I would say the trust your gut sort of more of a Chablis style and the camaraderie is more of a sort of a Rhone white style in terms of, uh, its yeah. richness and power and intensity. Um, yeah, so maybe, nice maybe that'll give people a bit more bit more because it's very hard to uh, describe wines textually um, <laughs> via sound. <laughs> um, so maybe that can be a, uh, a way for people to get their head around the two wines. Yeah. Um, what next, the Geronimo? Do you want to chat about the, uh, your other Cinso? Yeah, Geronimo, 
So just quickly, just going back on the camaraderie, sorry, I apologise. Um, the vineyard, uh, is it getting better with time? Is it sort of struggling more and more? What's the, no, what's, what's, what's the future of that vineyard? It's 200% uh, struggling. Um, oh, I think this, mass, this massive drought thing we're going through isn't helping a lot. And yeah, the big thing about Paul also is there's every year there's this massive mountain fires. So mm. um, unfortunately, there will be no 2020 camaraderie. Oh, that's the shame. Um, and um, I think each vineyard, like probably any life on earth, it is only can only get that old. Um, so I'm not too sentimental about the, the vineyard because um, I understand. And it, it, there comes this big financial question, obviously, as well. Um, and the, the amount of money that it takes to farm those old vineyards, it takes much more than younger vineyards. And we normally end up just having more fights and argues with importers because not everyone can get what they want. And, We'll, we'll keep going for as long as my wife says yes, because she's the one that sees if, if the, the books uh, clop or if everything is makes financial sense. But at the moment, we're still going to give it another go. But Geronimo, what's the, uh, the Cinso? <coughs> so this, you've obviously got the, uh, the break-a-leg Cinso, and then you've got Geronimo Cinso, which is also Stellenbosch now. It used to be a Paul Stellenbosch blend. Um, yeah. but it's now just Stellenbosch. Uh, is it the same vineyard? It's the, there's a, the extra vineyard in, um, which I'll explain to you shortly. The reason why there's, we stopped with the Paul vineyard is um, basically the, the farmer that we worked there, we didn't start seeing eye to eye. Um, there's a few reasons for that. And um, We've always loved this area in Stellenbosch, the Fergrove area, the same one that we spoke about in for the Breaker Leg wine. But it's, it's a different um, vineyard through the Breaker Leg wine, or is it? Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely different, much older vineyard. Um, and then, so Geronimo, the reason why we call the wine Geronimo is basically that, that sound that you, that you sh uh, shout out of the top of your lungs when you take that big leap of faith um, and that's kind of how we felt when we had to make the decision to do our own thing. Um, and for me, Geronimo, that, that exhilaration is also, I always get that kind of, when you smell a great glass of Cinso, your brain, it feels like you're jumping off this ledge. And, um, I love Cinso from three aspects for, for the farmer side because it's a very generous grape. It normally carries a nice fruit. It's big bunches, so you get much more tonnage of per hectare. Um, and then in the wine, in the winery, it's it always smells so perfumey and aromatic. It's just something that you want to drink. Mm. And then for the consumer, it is really a wine that anyone can drink, I think. Um, and it's a fantastic tapas wine. Um, you can drink it chilled, and then there are a few guys that, try and make a bit more serious style with a bit more tannin structure. And, and that's kind of the route that we wanted to follow. So more serious wine, sort of maybe with more nuances rather than just uh, yeah. drinkability and, and perfume fruit. Yeah, I was afraid that <clears throat> when we started doing Geronimo, the first vintage, which did really well for us, I, I was afraid of people starting to stereotype Cinso where they think it's a wine that you can drink, only can drink chilled in the swimming pool and when you're finished, you throw the bottle over the neighbor's wall. I wanted to do something that you can drink on its own. What, what kind of friends do you have, bro? You don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Tani so, to, to stop throwing um, bottles at your house, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to do something that you can have on its own, but we South Africans are very sociable people and... And when you tell your friend, but why don't you stay for a braai? I want the Cinso still to be able to, to be able to carry some food with it. Mm. And for me, Stellenbosch <clears throat> Cinso is a, a fantastic area for growing Cinso. Um, for me, two reasons. We have proper old um, Cinso vineyards here and our prox proximity to the ocean. So there's always this Atlantic breeze flowing, uh, blowing there, especially in this fir grove area. And then because it's so cold, yeah, our sensors hang, hang nice long and our skin are, are a bit thicker than the Swartland sensors. 
So our tannin structure is completely different to that of the, the swipe plant synthesis. And for me, I love that that uh, chalky tannin that you get from Simsa when you when you leave it a bit longer on its skins. And um, so the 2019 Geronimo is from Fergrove, and then we got a bit from the Botlare Hills, and just due to that, um, these Simsa vineyards, old vines didn't have fantastic uh, uh, crops uh, the last few years, and um, yeah, 19, I think you can taste. Nineteen seems to be a have been a tough year for for Sinso in particular. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, these vineyards since sixteen have been like forty percent down, then another thirty percent. So I think with the twenty twenty vintage this year, our vineyards were back to where they were. Um, and so you can taste it on the twenty nineteen Geronimo, uh, where we do everything hundred percent whole bunch. Um, that. Botlaray gave it much bit more heavier soils, did give a bit more weight to the middle. But for me, uh, it's more towards the 17 Geronimo with that crazy aromatics and perfume. Um, and it's a wine that I think will the people will enjoy. I, I really enjoyed the 2018 one because it's for me uh, probably the most, uh, not austere, but had the most structure of, of all the Geronimos. Well, I think the 19 is a great reflection of the vintage. It's really light and elegant and perfumed. and Yeah, it has a sort of ethereal quality to it. Yeah. I have two questions, um, probably more, but two that I can think of right now. The Bottleray Hills, uh, another area in Stellenbosch, what's their, you said they're heavier soils. What, what kind of soils do they have there? What, what's, what's, yeah, how, is, how is it different bit, from Fergrove? So it's basically on the... I'm not good with my compass uh, directions, but it's on the other side of Devon Valley. So there's a bit of that clay. That on the map, is it on the map? Is it left or right? Um, it depends on from which side you look. Um, if you come, <laughs> good answer. It's, if, if, yeah, if you come from if you come from if you come from Cape Town, it's on the left side. Okay. Um, Devon Valley. So it's also a massive uh, area. If you think of uh, some great friends, Donny Stateler and those guys. Um, so the soils are a bit more heavier, more structured soils, um, a lot more ferrocrete, and then this clay uh, layered. And, and I found that the reds, especially from that area, have, have a bit more structure compared to the Polkadai or Stalambos Kloof, where there's mm. a bit more granite soils. So yeah, less granite, uh, mm, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Okay. And if uh, you think of the, yeah. the Shenan Banks from that area, um, the, the carps of that 1947, which is, um, what's it, Radio Lazarus and those stuff, it's wines that have immense mid, mid uh, palates, and I think that's due to the mm. soils on the... Yeah, okay, so less less um, less precision, but just more, more presence almost. Yes. Yeah. And the other question was about 100% whole bunch. As you said, uh, when we're talking about breaker legs, since so isn't known for having low pHs or high acid. Whole bunch fermentations tend to make Give up, yeah. yeah yeah result in higher pHs and lower acids. Are those two factors not uh, a nightmare, or are you just a genius and you can work it out? No, I'm definitely not a genius. I think uh, what the reason why I like a whole bunch on on most of our reds is I like that that effect, that taste feel, that tannin that you get from 100% whole bunch. And, and for me, we we don't have to do a lot to get a lot of fruits on our wines because we're in a really warm area. And for me, that, that whole bunch tannin just coils around those ripe fruit flavors, and especially Sensa, which has a lot. For me, the key word is balance. I think the 2019 Sensa's acidity is 5 or 5.1. Um, so it isn't massively high, but for me, uh, you get that, I think, the perfume... On, and the lightness of the vintage kind of balances that uh, beautifully. So for me, as the acidity and pH thing is isn't a massive thing that when we contribute. For me, as it's always been the, the tannin, the structure of Geronimo that's important. I'm a lazy winemaker. I only do one punch down in the morning. So we really work very soft and gently with the with the grapes. So our stems doesn't end up being smashed and really that much. Uh, and how many, uh, how long are you on, on, on stems for? Yeah, it's, it depends on the vintage as well. 2017 was our longest. 
where the, the 2019 was probably 10 days from okay. beginning to end. Yeah. Um, but in, when the wine is dry, we just take a, a, a little bucket and we take some juice and we just wet the cap. I think also... So low extraction. Yeah, when you do 100% whole bunch, you have to be to have a different extraction method. You mm. can't just go the same method as with your de-stem stuff. So. And are you um, adding more sulfur to the Cinso um, than the other wines because of that? Because of the, the, the potential no. for high pH and, and low acid or, or not so much? Not at all. But for me, the most important, because I'm not a massive fan of carbonic maceration, is to, to make sure that there's no air in the beginning of fermentation because... When you when you don't stomp the grapes enough, they might become there might be some air pockets in between the bunches, and that's when you get VA problems. And so I want the fermentation to go to start as quick as possible. So for me, by not adding sulfur, that already helps a lot. And our cellar isn't as cool as as the other cellars, so they start fermenting probably the next afternoon. You can start smell CO2 coming off the of the must. Breton, I guess next, or do you want to talk about the graft? No, we can do Breton. Okay, cool. So Breton is the Cabernet Franc, a wine that is is quickly becoming a, uh, a hallmark for you. Probably uh, already has, to be honest, in terms of being separate from your peers in South Africa. There's not a lot of other guys or girls specialising in Cabernet Franc. There's a guy across the road from you called uh, Brevere Arts who makes some phenomenal Cabernet Franc and has done for uh, a couple of decades now. Then the, the other... Cabernet Franc producers come to mind. It's a very short list, and now you're on there with Prevert. Talk to us about why Cabernet Franc and and Breton and and, your, and the stylistic choices, because your wine is very different to the um, uh, well, not very different, but it is a different style to the Rats Cabernet Francs. So where the, where Breton started for us, I always loved the variety, especially the Loire wines, and. I was fortunate enough that when I worked in the States, I became friends with these guys that played on Wall Street. And I'll never forget uh, the first time when they opened those old Loire wines. It's just the, the energy and the focus on those wines, especially when they get some age on them. And then when I came back to South Africa, I didn't, I didn't really give it much thought of doing a Loire-style Cabernet Franc. But when we came and stayed here and moved in on Blue Gum Grove on Donnie Kerinas' farm in the Polkadrai, um, he took me to this vineyard and he said, what do you think? And I tasted it and I, my heart literally stopped. It, it tasted like something from Shinon. It had just that purity, that almost that aromatic lavender herbaceous uh, thing that you get on Cabernet Franc. you sure that wasn't and the I, cigarette that, um, that Donnie was, uh, was smoking at the time? <laughs> No, you were standing behind me. Oh, was he? Okay. Um, <laughs> and then um, I didn't have much money then, and so I phoned my father-in-law, Rob, and I said, listen, Dad, of Park, this is going to sound weird, but I need some money for, to buy a ton of grapes. We, I picked it on the Saturday at uh, a bulling that will give a lot of winemakers a heart attack, but um, it just tasted so pure. What was the bulling out of interest? 223 it's quite, that is quite low for the uh, for the sort of the Cabernet family, isn't it? Yeah, when I normally when I finish my last Cabernet Franc, the other guys go and sample this for the first time. So yeah, it's getting back from holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did. Um, I've been lucky enough to have tasted a lot of great Cabernet Francs from the Loire, and if you think of the Erigemar with his old vineyards and and the Clorugard boys. A lot of them do 100% whole bunch fermentation on their Cabernet Francs. And so I just thought to myself, why don't just I try it with this vineyard? And and the day that we pressed it, I with my roommate from Elsa Magrien and Borman from Boschkirk was there. And uh, we were just, I got goosebumps when I tasted it. Just that, that perfume and aromatics, because a lot of people don't know that perfume that Cabernet Franc has. And we decided uh, the name actually was is due to Richard Kelly because he's a massive law expert and lover. And he just said, why don't you call the wine Breton? And Breton, for those who don't know, is the, the Loire name for Cabernet Franc. And so on the label, there's the silhouette of a lady's face. And for me, Cabernet Franc, when it's done properly, in my opinion, there's nothing that comes close to it. It's that perfume, that focus, um, that energy that it gets. And I think massively due to that is uh, the, the vineyards that we use for Breton 
are all planted on granitic soils and that granite soils kind of enforces that that finesse and that focus on, on the variety as well. So you, so we do you, you think the style of the, the Cabernet Franc that you're making is almost dictated by the site that you're getting the fruit from? Definitely. And then obviously the picking date as well. I love, a, I love uh, the more Bordeaux style Cabernet Francs. Um, for me, the, the Rods family Cabernet Franc is the one that I have to have a case of each vintage because you get, I get to that point, especially in the winter when you have a nice Osabuco or Oxtail stew. Mm. And those wines just work beautifully with those foods. Um, but for me, like I said, my opinion about the variety is you have to have that herbaceousness because if you don't like that herbaceousness, then you should just drink Cabernet Sauvignon. And as these wines, these styles of Cabernet Franc, even for those that do drink a bit of Loire Cabernet Franc, after year five, they start losing that herbaceousness, and then it's just this beautiful fruit and spice that comes out. Graft, or as your American uh, friends would say, graft. Graft. <laughs> so the reason why we call that, this one graft is basically a massive tribute to my wife. The, the grafting of two things coming together and working like the rootstock and the, the vinifera grafted together. And then just to keep on grafting, just do what you believe in. And if you have a philosophy, stick to it. So this is a, a, a single vineyard Syrah. This is probably one of the highest vineyards in the Polkadry Hills, farmed by, again, Joshua Hubert on the farm Karibab. And I'm fortunate enough that I get to share this uh, vineyard with my best friend, Renan, and then John Smith, um, who's also a fantastic winemaker. And uh, we've always had this ideology from the beginning that Renan wanted to see how this fantastic grapes do in concrete. And I wanted to do, because when you look on our portfolio, we didn't have that wine that had that unbelievable tannin structure that when you taste it, you'll know this will age for 15 years easily. Uh, so we do a bit more, if I can call it a hermitage style, where we give some new oak to the wine. And we do 100% whole bunch fermentation, one punch down in the mornings. And then we age it in big French oak barrels, 30% new. And um, yeah, that was a quite a big decision for us to do because new oak is very expensive. And uh, it took me two years to, to decide on the cooper and the, the toasting. And, and for me, that new oak just lifts, gives this unbelievable perfume to this wine. So the, yeah. the first graft that you made had uh, a cheeky bit of cinso in it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, why does it not have Cinso in it now? Is it because Cinso is in such short, short supply with the, the drought? Or have you made a stylistic choice that graft should now be just a, a single? Uh, I think there's, there's three reasons for it. Um, the first vintage, we were lucky enough to get an old vine Cinso from a farm called Jakobsdal, which is a very famous uh, uh, wine brand. I don't know if it still exists that the Stell had but also farmed by a good farmer called Hannes. When was it um, famous? It certainly wasn't famous in the last 10 years. No, no, definitely not. It's an, it's an old brand. It was called Jak, Jakobsdal. They did a pinotage and, and yeah. stuff. So um, is this back in the what, 80s and 90s or earlier than that? Yeah, definitely 90s. Um, okay. And then um, the Cinso was unbelievable. It, it smelled and tasted like Syrah. It was something oh. when I had... People taste that sensor and they said there's no way that this could be sensor. And obviously, we didn't have a lot of cedar. Um, so for me, I just thought the, the sensor already tastes like cedar. Why don't I just do a blend of it? I never talk of what other people thought of the wines, but um, I was lucky enough to taste the wines with Neil Martin. And um, he just, he obviously loved the wine. And then he said, well, why don't you just use the cedar on, it, on its own? And I said, well, I don't have enough of that grapes. And as it were, we were able to get a bit more in 2018 and we didn't get any more of the Jakobs Dolson so due to other reasons. But for me, it's the, the Syrah is when you, ta when you drink this wine, I think you will probably agree that I don't think the Sensei would have done improved it at all going forward. So how do we, how do we get you more fruit from here? Do we have to, do we have to kill Rhiannon? Is that what we have to do? <laughs> to take it, do we have to take, do you have to take him off the board? I think the great thing about this vineyard is 
the ideal thing is where I would love to see some of these great vineyards where people share it is if we could, but we need the, the, the end user to understand it as well. It's kind of to do that burgundy thing where we just call it Cariba, whatever the vineyard's name is, and mm. to, to drink the free producers that make the wine from there. Um, well, the, the Cravens have the already started day. doing that, haven't they? I mean, the Cravens have got, you know, their Caribib Shannon, and yeah, so they've already sort of laid the groundwork for that. So it would be great to see yeah. that uh, go forward for sure. And I think that's uh, that's what we're all trying to do. Hmm. Um, and I must say the Cravens are probably the, the the icons of Stellenbosch when it comes to that. And because what I admire about them is their their philosophy and they stick to it and they, they do what they believe in. And each vintage, it's just unbelievable, the honesty of their wines and giving respect to the sites that they work with. And, and that's what we're trying to do myself, Renan. And John is is trying to let that vineyard or the terroir, which is a word I don't like, to let the, the work of Yosha come to light. And uh, why don't you like the word terroir? Because it 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 feels to me like a, a word that people use to sound clever and that they know what they maybe they about. maybe maybe they are clever and they do know what they're talking about. Maybe not, but maybe they do. Yeah, that's no, true. <laughs> 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 that didn't cross your mind that they might actually be clever than what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, not all of them. No, that's t- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I when it. people use the word terroir five times in a statement. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, 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 and then and then proceed to talk about two hundred percent new work. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's funny people in their sort of their quirks with these sort of things. I had a conversation with um, with Niels also on the podcast that's that's up already. About he, he, I mean, he's Shiraz is a Shiraz, not a Syrah, because uh, he thinks Syrah can't be made in South Africa. <laughs> like it's just like flat out, no, <laughs> fuck that. It's, it's full, it's bullshit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just stop drinking it, Yeah, no, grafter, phenomenal wine. Um, so yeah, is it always going to be in such sort of supply? Do you think is that just the nature of the vineyard and and your part in it? It is by far your smallest production, production wine. I mean, obviously the camaraderie no longer, but uh, out of the others. It, 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 it. Yeah. I would love to say that we could make more, but um, this year I did try a block that's a bit lower than that one to see how that comes out. But at the moment, this is a wine that when we when we do open it, which isn't often, obviously now this morning, nine o'clock, it's very nice. But uh, um, <laughs> Yeah. You're showing dedication there, but I have to say. Yeah. yeah, you gave me the perfect opportunity. Yeah, so you're going to call the other one Petit Graft or something like that? Yeah, Grafty or something. Grafty? <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Now, now, your labels are quite striking. There is obviously a, 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 a very, there's a line running through them. They all look, the branding is very strong. Uh, talk us through the, the process of, of those labels. I mean, they're all very, uh, they're all, they look similar from afar, but very different from close up. So these two wonderful friends of ours, uh, Ron Etzebet and Janeman Solems, I'm very good friends with a good friend of them, Berti Kutsia from Loverland, and I've, I do this collaboration with them where we do this Tanat and Kolomba from Priska. And before I started, while we were busy with our 2016 harvest, I was lucky enough to, to have a glass of wine with them, and they said, listen, we would love to, to help you with your labels. And I was blown away because they are very well-known designers. And I said, oh, that would be great. And myself and Roxanne said in the beginning, if you're going to go do this thing 110%, we have to do like a fantastic packaging. Because if, if we failed, I'm not afraid of failure, but I didn't want people to say behind my back, but you could have done your packaging better. Um, so I told them, let's do something that's never been done before. And so we decided to go... Uh, for this collage effect where every little picture on the collage tells a story of how we got here where we are today. Like on the breaker leg, there's uh, the silhouette of a guy with a cowlick hair, which I normally have uh, because I don't wash my hair enough. And then in the middle, there's uh, this leg in a brace, which kind of reflects the, the injury. And then we have this common thread of a postage stamp which is something unique about South Africa, like Camaraderie has the springbok. Um, Geronimo has our national fish, the Khalyun. I think wine is a beverage, but it's also a story uh, dating back to where the vineyards are grown, the farmers, the winemakers, and their interpretation of how they see what they're doing. 
And when people hear that or have heard the story, it's nice when you're abroad and you're doing a tasting in America or the UK and, and people can invite friends over and tell like a little two minute story about the wines. Uh, before I let you go and so you can start uh, drinking in earnest, you've, already, you've probably already mentioned uh, a fair few of them, but uh, whose other wines in South Africa are you excited about at the moment? Sure. Oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. Am I? Yeah. I think you're yeah, going to your, not... get yourself in trouble more like it, mate. Yeah, I can't <laughs> mention everyone, but uh, yeah, I, this year I, I started getting a lot of respect for female winemakers that are pregnant during harvest. So <laughs> Yulandi, Yulandi for sheer... Jessica Sauer wine, basically all the, the, the women winemakers and then all, all my friends, all the guys that believe in what they're doing. Mm. Uh, I really love the Craven stuff, Craig Hawkins, the Swartland uh, Mafia, everyone. <laughs> you just like everyone's wines, aren't you? You're just a nice guy, Lucas. Yeah, it's, I'm going to get in. <laughs> I'm going to get WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, um, thank you for chatting us through it. Um, is there anything else you want to um, chat about? Um, with you and your wines or anything else? No, I think, uh, I think we're in a, amidst this uh, virus stuff. I just want the people to, to believe in brands of Africa and, and look after the farmers and, and just doing what you believe in. Because that, for me, answering your question and whose wines I like, who I think is, you can taste in a winemaker's wines when he is 150% committed and passionate about what he's doing and that for me shines through in the end product so yeah i mean that's just, that's what that's why we call it ex animo so yeah i think i fully exactly. agree i fully agree with you um, right. so you can taste the, the guys that that do what they want and then when all of this is over those that are watching or listening just go out and support local eat local drink local and uh, vs lacquer thanks lucas cool. Thank you. cheers man cheers bye